Hello everyone and welcome back to Right Click Radio, the podcast which puts NFTs in context and considers the latest trends in Web3. In today's episode, Casey Reese and Lauren Lee McCarthy explore the future of social software with Alex Esterick and explain what makes Southern California a different kind of art world. So Elida said last week, because we were talking about how, in a sense, the politics of a particular community are encoded in the languages that they use. And indeed, those languages sometimes only last as long as the community lasts. And one of the communities that she drew attention to was processing, quote, which has such a strong, transparent and open source community. P5JS goes above and beyond on the ethical front, which is really reflected in the work that gets produced in that community. I wonder, Casey, if you might just take us back to the beginning 20 odd years ago and just perhaps say something about your thoughts about language and your thoughts about the ethics of a particular community are intertwined in some way. Yes, for sure. And there's different ways of speaking about language with early days of processing too. The code language had a priority towards being terse and minimal and processing definitely was made to be a sketching language and it was really made to make visual arts, and so the language was very direct. The line function draws a line, for example. (laughs) And then built into all of that is the layer of things being open source and things being completely free. So like free, as in um, uh, people have the freedom to look at the source code, people have the freedom to modify the source code, but then also that people don't have to pay for it which in the world of software in the early 2000s, there are vibrant open source communities, but within the arts communities specifically, which is dominated by a few large companies, making something and having it be accessible so people can download without cost so that the code is open, it's non-proprietary. Processing was a really rare piece of work within that community, within the technical domains. And so early processing days were really about three things. It was about the community, it was about the language itself and how to use that for sketching with code. And it was also about education. And so the ethos on the early processing forums online was about helping each other and sharing. And it was a relatively small group of people when it first started. I would say there's hundreds of people who were using it. Ben and I would often spend hours a day on the forum, listening to people, getting a sense of what's going on. And it was a really generous community. People were really kind and open. That was there from the very start of processing. Thank you. And yes, and I just wondered, Lauren, whether you might say something about your own experiences of the community. I know one of the questions from the Processing Community Catalogue was, what does community mean to you? I don't know if you can perhaps parse any of that. It's rather wonderfully an, um, tome-like book. I think the community is the essential aspect. It definitely was for me working on the P5 project. It was never for me about an ambition to make a tool. It was more about an interest in how we could come together as a community and make something together. And I think from the start, processing felt different. It felt really welcoming. As a woman of color in this space, starting out you know, in the 2011, 2013, it felt difficult to get into some of these tools or to really be a part of the community because they were so male-dominated. And so I think from the first invitation from Casey and Ben and Dan to be part of the processing project, that invitation really stuck out in my mind and I wanted to see how could we continue to push that. Processing from the beginning, I think, has been about thinking through access and who has access to these tools. And so then with my work on P5, that we really kind of took that as the core of the project and said, what if every design and technical decision actually flowed from a real commitment to access and inclusion? What does that look like and how does that update over the years? 
And also the, the, I'll just use the word transaction among the community. It's because it's not a commercial proprietary piece of software where the transactions are financial. Like we're making this tool for people to consume. It's really about the community. We're artists making our own tools. We're making our own community. And it's a very different environment to be collaborating together to make our own tools. And I think that's been at the foundation of things. And Lauren pushed those in really needed ways with the P5.js project. Yeah, I think P5 in many ways drew really directly from processing in some of the core ideas and a lot of the syntax and what the tool could do, at least at the starting point. But the development was a little bit different. So rather than it just being a smaller number of people working on the core code, we really put an emphasis on not just having a diversity of users, but having a diversity of contributors actually working on it. And one of my big points of emphasis was expanding the idea of what a contributor might mean. Contributing might mean writing code, but it could also mean writing documentation, making educational materials, leading workshops, doing graphic design. I think that was really important for the project, this feeling of, yes, it's a tool that you can use, it's open source and it's free, but it's also something you can contribute to, that you can be a part of. And this idea that we can all, as artists, be tool makers, that we don't have to wait for a company to give us the tools under their terms. And so I think that question of like, how far can we push what a contributor is or looks like in P5 really opened up the project a lot because different people would come to the project with different ideas of things that they might contribute that had never occurred to us maybe in the beginning. And so the project took a lot of different turns. A few years into the project, one collaborator, Claire Kinney-Balbe, came and said, well, you know, you're talking about how this project is about access and inclusion, but your kind of Hello World program is a circle moving across the screen. And for someone that's blind or has seeing impairments, that doesn't work for them at all. So what does that mean? Are you saying this digital arts tool only works for people that are seeing or have really good vision? And so that really kicked off a whole line of the project that was about thinking through how people with disabilities might use the tool. I think through that process of different contributors coming in with different needs and perspectives, we were able to really expand the capabilities of what the tool in the community could do. For me, that's what's so exciting about the community catalog. It, it uh, documents these 20 years of the total project. And I don't remember how many pages it is precisely, but all of the purple pages, maybe 792 of them or something like that, are all one page for one person from the community. And it was an open call and basically said, how does the processing community relate to you and in your life and your work? There was no editing there. It was just everybody who wanted to share is a part of the community catalog. And seeing everybody's ideas and commitment and emotion expressed through those pages, it's just extraordinary. I have a preoccupation with this notion of art and technology coming together. And one of the benefits of that being that it allows artists to, in a sense, become designers of progressive technology. But I think the sense of art as being an autonomous realm apart does seem to me to be compromised to some extent in, in a good way, I think, by a project like processing. And I think about all of the generative art, for example, that we see, some of which is very visually seductive, some of which is not principally visual. And and I wonder if what you see as being the potential emergent implications of the generative systems born out of processing, which seem to me to be very exciting and perhaps one area of solace that I can see in the sort of progress of neoliberal regime. It seems to me if artists can design progressive technologies and it seems to me that code is working with P5.js, part of the processing community are particularly inclined to shape a progressive set of technologies in Web3 or beyond. And it seems to me that when we talk about emergence, an NFT collection 
sector might think about a quote-unquote grail. I would rather like to see emergence as something capable of a kind of disruptive or progressive political nature. Is that fantastical to think of, of generative artists as political actors? My one issue with generative art sometimes is when I feel it becomes a kind of reiteration of modernist painting or some such. I really hear that strongly. I do think it's disappointing that we do have this opportunity to explore something unprecedented and something new. I mean, everybody knows I work in abstraction. I'm a formalist. I work in ideas. And so I think the aesthetics of generative art include change. I think for me, that's just fundamental. I think generative art is a branch of performance, the way that something can always be unique and different every time it's experienced. There are these strong connections to conceptual art and to things that are not purely visual. And so I think when generative art is used to produce still images that are in strong reference to paths of radical exploration in the 20th century, that as a community, we're not pushing forward. It's an interesting ecology because it's not just the artists. I think there is art that is radical in ways that is being produced, but a lot of this is being driven by the taste of the collectors and the taste of the market and other actors, auction houses, galleries, things like that. I think that's always true with art. Like always what I feel is the most interesting work is not the thing that has the most energy around it. So I think the work is there. A lot of the attention is directed in less interesting places. But what I feel are the possibilities to push the visual arts forward through new media. Like for example, photography didn't just develop photography. It also radically shifted painting and everything else. I think now that more and more artists are working with code and we've kind of settled on this term generative art. We can do things that have never been done before. And I think that's the most interesting space for us to be pushing into right now, rather than resting and relying on innovations of prior generations of artists. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's a lot of really interesting work being done. I think about like Orson Aliari's work, thinking about the way that gender was portrayed in Persian literature and then using AI models to generate new imaginations of that. Or thinking of Mimi Anuaha's work, which I think is super relevant, thinking about like what data are these systems based on and what are the missing data sets and how is that a political act in itself? Just thinking about what data is available, what is documented and undocumented. So I think there are a lot of really interesting examples and then whether or not they get the attention or the energy, as Casey's saying, is a really big concern. I think the generative art space, especially the people that are really succeeding in it, is dominated by white men. And sometimes I talk with, with curators and say, well, what does it mean that there's such a lack of diversity in the show that you're curating or the space? And the answer is kind of like, well, this is what the best work that we're seeing is. And then my view of that is, if that's really true, which I would question, then maybe that whole paradigm that framing of generative art needs to be blown up and we need to find a, a different framing that's more interesting. Otherwise, we're just kind of perpetuating the, the same imbalances and maybe exacerbating them. So when you were talking about the aesthetics and how they may seem somewhat limited, I think that's what happens when you have sort of a limited representation of perspectives making work. And the more you start to diversify that, the more I think radical and, and diverse and interesting the work becomes. Yeah, so the fundamental idea of starting processing was let's get this knowledge outside of institutions. Let's get this out of MIT and into the world. This field is not interesting at all if there's 15 graduate students at MIT who are sort of doing it. It's only going to be interesting if we have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people globally working in generative art. 
And so the primary aim of early processing was let's take this really extraordinary way of thinking, which coding for me is, which software is, it, it's not a technical medium, it's a conceptual medium. And let's get this in the hands of artists and designers globally. That was the mission of processing. Early days of processing, early days of the generative art scene was highly dominated by white men in America and in Europe. And if I go back and I look at shows that were happening in like 2001, 2003, in hindsight of the moment, it's just an embarrassment. It's just so limited. And so the first generation of processing was really about let's get software into the hands of more people. And I think the second generation of software was let's get software into more people with a real focus on breaking out of the cultural stereotypes of who a programmer is. I'm conscious of you both being very successful artists at the same time as working as professors at UCLA. And I wonder, personally, I think it would be interesting for people to know a little bit about perhaps the challenges of working as an artist, working as an artist in Web3 and balancing that with teaching, but also perhaps how teaching and creating inform each other for you yeah, I think the teaching really informs my practice very directly in many ways. I am doing so much work that involves interacting with people and creating different social situations. And so I'm always seeing the classroom a little bit as like a workshop or a playground where I'm testing different ideas or students are te testing different ideas in terms of how we interact around technology or with each other. And a lot of that feeds into my performance practice or sometimes I'm taking things from my art practice and bringing them into the classroom and finding that can kind of transform the teaching or the way that the students are engaging with things. So for me, it's really closely linked. And then I guess the, the last aspect is just, I think both Casey and I are very interested in how community is made. I think that was a big interest with processing in P5. And so teaching at UCLA, that's sort of another place where we can think about how that could work in a different context. And it's a challenge to do it within an institution, but I think that's something we're both really excited about at UCLA. Yeah, I think teaching is a really interesting space of push and pull. At times I'm challenging the students and at times they're challenging me. And I think that's really healthy and productive both ways. And as an artist working with code and my teaching as an educator teaching code to new generations of artists, they've, they've always interleaved in interesting ways. And students, particularly the graduate students, have really different interests than I do. And so it's always an interesting challenge to get out of my own head, get into their heads, and to really be able to push them in, in their direction outside of my own biases. And I think that's really helped me to grow as an artist in tremendous ways too. So for me, it's, it's sort of like jumping into the river and we're swimming together and the river's raging and sometimes we go through rapids and sometimes we go through still pieces. I think also we, we know that education, we know that educational institutions have become more corporate over the years, but it's still an extraordinary home base within our larger culture where the focus is not on profit somewhere to be and to exist uh, where other ideas and other community oriented idea oriented socially oriented topics are really the priority and so the university of california is importantly a public university it's like we're subsidizing education for um, students from california and it's a much more open and diverse educational environment than a lot of private institutions so for me it's important that the processing project and that my own work and life are grounded in the University of California. Leading on from that, would one of you or both of you say something about the UCLA Social Software Initiative, which you're launching? It's a fresh project. And so, yeah, this is the first time we've actually talked about it. 
Yeah, this is a, a new initiative that we're working on at UCLA, but I guess we're hoping that it can be something that extends beyond or outside of the institution. It's really thinking about the social impacts and the possibilities of making the software. And so we liked this name, social software, and we kind of thought of that as a starting point of what is social software? What does that mean? And the work is based around inviting different collaborators to respond to that provocation, to think about software in the most social sense, and also the power dynamics and equities and biases that are embedded in technology, and then the possibilities that it opens up in terms of thinking about accessible tech or thinking about open source communities. So it's bringing a lot of the things that we're already interested in and have been working with generative systems, AI, social media, internet in, and then bringing this specific lens or framing of social software to it and thinking about how that could be a starting point for different collaborative projects. It's very much an extension of what we've been doing through the Processing Foundation, but with a focus that is more broad. For example, for over 20 years, making the processing software has been sort of like the dominant thing in my life. I think a lot of that energy that we both had and put into that project, we're now focusing more into the local community at UCLA with similar themes, but with the idea of having the freedom to do projects that are outside of the precise domain of the Processing Foundation. We want to have fellowships. We want to bring in different artists, like local artists to Los Angeles to come in and to collaborate with us on projects. We want to provide support to the local community. We want to do recruitments for graduate students to work within social software. One of the really clear agendas is to support women of color working in generative art. One of the things that my positionality, trying to preserve this notion of a kind of movement for radical inclusivity, a crypto art as a kind of global and inclusive project, I see California as, in a sense, as, as a possible testbed for this alternative art world. And indeed, of course, the history of California as a sort of petri dish for art and technology to cross-fertilize its literal horizontality versus New York as a kind of vertical, hierarchical behemoth. I do see you both as very important as a counterpoint to legacy behaviors and structures, which I feel are currently threatening what was at the beginning of the sort of NFT space, so to speak, I think a genuine march towards a world where someone can build a career as an artist without traditional mediators. I've always wanted to know your thoughts on in a down market like this, especially where that project might be going. Does California represent a potential haven for that to build out of? The whole reason I moved to California in the first place, I lived on the East Coast, I lived in Europe a while, was because I feel like in California, you can still move out to a canyon or go out to the desert and you can really have space to do your own thing. I think what you said about extreme hierarchies, I think those exist in Europe, they exist in New York, and I, I think there's space outside of that here. I know that in the art world, Los Angeles has really been changing. 1960s, 70s, 80s, you could do stuff here without any commercial pressure. The gallery and collecting just really was not exerting influence on what artists were doing. And I think that's been changing over the years, but I still think that can be captured here. I feel positive that there's other places where you can still do that too, but I'm just going to say Southern California is a place where I think you can still pursue that. 
I think there's a real history of a lot of experimentation in California, and I see a tie to, from that to what's happening today, even if those were sort of separate projects and movements and schools and things. And I think one of the things that helps is that there are a lot of art schools here, and that means that there's a lot of young artists that are really pushing the boundaries. And I think that's, for me, one of the most exciting things about LA is not the galleries or the museums or any of these larger structures, but these kind of independent projects that are coming from really fresh artists that are just beginning and really imagining different possibilities. The Fembit show that's happening on Filmfile got its start years ago through some of the alumni, I think from DMA and other art programs, and they've been curating shows around those themes for a while. And so it's exciting to see it then coming into the NFT space and that this project continues to exist and bring in new artists. Yeah, I think NF Tuesday continues to bring people together every week, and that's relatively new. It's new energy. It wasn't here before. Yeah. Human Resources is another extraordinary space that's been going for quite a while. Super Collider is another uh, collective that's been going for a while. And I think we have a group like Fembit that's very aligned with what the Web3 that I want to see, the, the NFT alternative art ecology that I want to see, and like being able to connect those things. I think there's a lot of promise and potential. Just historically in Los Angeles, the institutions are all really new because Los Angeles is so new. There's no Metropolitan Museum of Art here. There's not even a MoMA, you know, like LACMA's really new, MOCA's super new. And so I think that the different art schools, CalArts, UCLA Art Center, Otis, USC, I think that that's sort of like the grounding of the arts community here rather than institutions, hierarchical institutions. But I think also a lot of artists in Los Angeles are educators intentionally. And I think there's a sense in New York, like if you're teaching it's because you failed as an artist in Los Angeles. It's because you believe in the mission of education. You believe in supporting new generations. And I think there's just a very different culture here. Lauren, I wonder if you might just say something. Nicole and I are very excited to have you participating in the FemGen at Marfa. The original FemGen was an event where we had 23 artists identifying as female, not all what you might call creative coders or generative artists, but nevertheless, I think what felt like a movement. And this project, I think, is going to have eight artists for this weekend in, in Marfa. And I wonder, based on what you said earlier, Lauren, what it means to participate in that kind of thing. Because, of course, although it seems to me to be a very worthwhile project, in a sense, being in that orbit, you are also very much appended to that male-dominated generative art space. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy that the show is happening because I think it brings attention to some of the artists that are working that perhaps are underrecognized compared to some of the other artists working. But it's also sort of a funny setup. I'm, I'm curious what the event will be like this year. I, I haven't attended, but I've seen photos in the past and it looked extremely male dominated just from the photos on social media. So to think of a setting like that and then to have a show of women's art in the midst of that, that's kind of a funny dynamic. <laughs> like, oh, we've collected a bunch of women's art to show to all these men. You know, some people would say, like, I don't want my work in a show that's framed around it just being about women. There's plenty of shows of work of just men that aren't called men gen, you know. But for me, I'm, I'm more of the opinion that, like, everything helps. And so I'm excited to be in the show and, and to support that. And I think there's also an opportunity to think about what space that, that opens. I haven't actually like participated in a lot of generative art shows because my practice is, um, <laughs> there's generative aspects to it, but that's not the, the first term I would use to describe it. I'm interested in like how I can use that context to explore some of the ideas that I've been thinking about in other parts of my practice. 
And Casey, the initial impetus for this conversation was also to learn more about your Art Blocks and Bright Moments project, 923 Empty Rooms, as well as your LACMA projects, an empty room and a full room. Can you perhaps tie together those threads? Well, this all got started around 2015 with work I was doing around history of the still life in art and also the history of simulation and software. And so I did a series of works. There was a show at the Bitforms Gallery in 2016 called There's No Distance, which was a series of these software still lives where what is being uh, rendered in the still life is the platonic solids, like these ideas of these shapes and then rendered in a way that pulls them apart based on the information in the stimulated image and then sort of represents that information as a diagram. So it's like image is data, data is image. Recently at the LA County Museum of Art, the LACMA, there was a show called Coded that was curated by Leslie Jones. An Empty Room was a commission, like a contemporary commission from Leslie and from Joel Ferrer of the LACMA Art and Technology Program to um, make a new work that's in dialogue with the work encoded. Specifically, they asked me to look at Victor Vassarelli's work, the Hungarian-French painter who was famous for his like concrete, non-objective, what a lot of people call op art made a proposal to LACMA in the early 1970s, like 1971, for this machine that would be a generative Vassarelli engine, like a, basically a light grid that could generate infinite Vassarellis. And so An Empty Room was a two-part project. Um, the first was called Meta Vassarelli, and the second part was An Empty Room, where I pushed it further into like my own ideas and my own realm of practice. A Full Room was in a project that Lauren and I initiated, and the idea there was to, in the old school style, um, have a happening in the space where an empty room exists. So we worked with LACMA, we took over the gallery at closing time one night, we had an open call for people to come and experience this with us, and we brought in Romy Morrison and Edgar Frias to also do performances, and all four of us did two sets of five-minute performances like in the space, responding to the work, responding to the LACMA show. This was actually one of the first kind of experiments we did with social software also. So we posed that question to Edgar and Romy, what does the idea of social software mean to you? And so I think we were all thinking about our five-minute segments as kind of scores or scripts that we were enacting in the space. And we saw it as kind of like a really early way of starting to think through some of those ideas with collaborators and with a group of people. I'm really excited about those opportunities. And I think that's something you've seen Web3 to collaborate and see what happens when you take two or more different artists and put them together and what happens in the intersections between those practices. How do the, the, the different practices talk with each other or diverge or intersect? The Bright Moments Project, collaboration with them and all of their six global spaces. We're going to release that over six days, moving one direction around the globe. We're going to start with Tokyo, Berlin, London, New York, Mexico City, Los Angeles. They've created these sub-DAOs in different cities with different spaces. And the idea is to do a release each day and then do a reception party in those cities corresponding with it. An Empty Room was what I would just call like a more traditional generative art project. It's like one piece of software that can do an undetermined number of different things. And 923 Empty Rooms is what I would call a long-form generative work. I really embrace that term. I think it's, it's an exciting change in generative art. One of the pieces in the Coded show was Solowit's Incomplete Open Cubes, which is a permutation system. Like every permutation of how you combine the sides of a cube from basically a full cube to two lines. And so the reason there's 923 empty rooms is that's all the combinations of six different shapes. 
And so each city has a shape and a color associated with it. And when you do the combination with repetition algorithm, you get 923 different ways of configuring those shapes. So there's going to be 154 different works minted for each city and then 153 for Los Angeles. But each one is specific set of how those shapes combine. And that's what makes each work in, in the long-form generative piece unique. But it's a simulation too. It's, it's not like a fixed piece. And so each one can be performed and modified and changed with a lot of different controls that allow people to explore the system. I think for me, the work is not the image. The work is how the image changed. The work is the system behind the image. And so I want to give people the opportunity to perform the system in the work as well. Um, there is something that is fixed in parametric. There's 923 because that's how these combinations play out. But within each one, there are generative components too. My view of generative art is that it extends well outside the boundaries of computation. I think generative art is anything that the artist makes a system, the system makes the art. That's my definition of generative art. And so it expands all kinds of media. It goes into music, it goes into drawing, it goes into performance, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm less interested in computers and more interested in generativity. With my art, I'm often thinking about making a system and then kind of inserting that into humans. So taking the, the program and actually installing it in people rather than in computers and seeing what emerges. I don't know about generative versus parametric, but it's something I'm interested in my art practice, but I think also just in our everyday interactions more and more, we're having programs installed in us through the devices that we use and the systems we come into contact with. And so I think there's an interesting play there when then artists turn around and make generative art. They're, I think they're sort of a mirroring in some of the impulses that we're perhaps experiencing by living in a world that is so generative itself. Mm -hmm.